morning, which we'll find in Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Remember, we're continuing in our survey of the book of Romans that natural law theology falls short of the gospel of grace and taking overview of various uh, chapter sections. So we read this morning uh, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, let us hear and attend to the word of God. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is freed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ." that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter." We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law or by what rule of works? No, by the law or by the rules of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Well, the reasoning of the Apostle Paul here at the end of chapter 3 of Romans sounds contradictory if we don't understand the relationship of the moral law between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And that's what we've been seeking to to see in uh, the survey of Paul's writing here in the epistle to the Romans. That therefore, natural law, theology, falls short of the gospel of grace without the special revelation of the new covenant gospel fulfilling the covenant of grace. And it's interesting to note, as I pointed out to you, I I hope you've been reading in the book of Romans. I've encouraged you to do that. But have you taken note of how the Apostle Paul uses Old Testament scripture? Isn't that interesting? How he applies that and how he explains and through the use of what God has revealed in preparation and the promise of the coming of the new covenant. How he explains for us this uh, relationship of the moral law of God between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And and consider, what if we didn't have the New Testament scriptures? That's the situation of the first century believers, of the uh, new covenant believers, those who were making the transition out of Judaism and those who were being saved out of paganism. And the explanation given to them of how God had prepared and made known the coming and the promise of salvation through His covenant of grace in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, how all that is wrapped up together. And even for those who were not raised in Judaism, remember in the first three chapters, Paul talks about that, even Gentiles, because of the witness of the law of God in their conscience, because of the way that God has created us as his image bearers, how we all descend from Adam and Eve and have that covenant relationship with God in terms of the covenant of, of, of works. It is universal. So understanding the relationship 
of the moral law of God between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is what the Apostle Paul is driving at here in chapter 1. We've heard him say this. We hear it again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I've told you that in that, Paul goes on to explain, and we'll even see more of this next week in chapters 9 through 11, that the priority here is one of uh, chronology and of of God's uh, bringing his plan of redemption and salvation to be known. So for the Jew first and also for the Greek, not by a partiality, but rather in terms of chronology and God's purposed work, for, the righteous, for in it, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Uh, interestingly, again there, that at the conclusion, Paul quotes from Habakkuk, the prophet, prophet Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. It's not a new message. It's the fulfillment of the old message. That's what John says. It's the fulfillment of the old message that God had promised that has come to its fulfillment in the covenant of grace Um, through the new covenant in Christ Jesus. So the key references that we've been using in this survey uh, and for the complete survey as we continue on in it this morning um, are intended to be support of concise expositional doctrinal statements and then the verses between those key verses explain and illustrate the intended connection and confirm for us the theme that we're, we're pointing out, and that is that natural law theology falls short of the gospel of grace. We need and we must proclaim and be faithful to God's means of grace, for it is only by God's way that sinners are saved. And there's a real threat and temptation to turn away from that or to add to it or to try to make it more palatable or exciting or acceptable or entertaining or winsome or all these different descriptions that are used other than not being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this morning we're going to look in part two at uh, the key verses in several chapters for the second part. We're going to start and look at uh, chapters uh, seven and eight and then also chapters 12 through 15. Of course we're There's a gap of chapters 9 through 11, which we'll come back to next week, and I hope that'll be clear as to why. But I do want you to see the parallel and the connection, chapters 7 and 8 and chapters uh, 12 through 15, explaining Christian salvation as regeneration by gift faith and not law works through the covenant of grace with a new gospel relationship to the moral law of God from Jesus Christ revealing Savior God. And then you may be aware, and hopefully you'll find it interesting when we come to chapter 13 in the middle of this, there's something very important there for us as well in context, not just taken in isolation. So, part two, we're looking at how the Apostle Paul is explaining Christian salvation as regeneration by gift faith and not law works through the covenant of grace with a new gospel relationship to the moral law of God from Jesus Christ revealing Savior God. A new gospel relationship to the moral law of God. And I hope that you heard that very clearly when we read our opening passage, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7. So in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, and then over to chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, these key verses, God's covenantal order is also a law order 
which does not render it impersonal, but personally transforming for a supernatural intimacy with the triune God from the ethical indwelling of the Holy Spirit of adoption so that mercy and truth meet together and righteousness and peace have kissed from Psalm 85. Don't you love that expression? And I think it's what the Apostle Paul is further revealing and applying here. That mercy and truth have met together. And oftentimes we find them wanting to be pitted against each other. The tender mercies of the wicked are cruel, the Proverbs tell us. But mercy and truth in Christ have met together. And righteousness and peace have kissed. Isn't the Apostle Paul talking about in the first three chapters how righteousness sets rebellious sinners against God? Not at peace, as enemies of God. But now we're looking at the power of the Holy Spirit as the spirit of adoption, applying the finished work of Christ in terms of the covenant of grace. And to learn that God's covenantal order is also a law order, which does not render it impersonal, but personally transforming. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning, about the legal and the filial. How does the legal and the filial meet in the most wonderful way? A legal transaction that gives someone a legal standing, but also within a family to give them a family connection, even to the extent that they become an heir in that family to which they were not born. You know the answer. The answer is adoption. And what does the Apostle Paul use? What does Scripture reveal to us? As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit is called what? In this very book of Romans, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Adoption. You see... God's covenantal order is a law order, but it's not impersonal. It's most intimately personal. Because by the law word of God, we are adopted into the family of God with all legal standing to the amazing extent that we are called joint and co-heirs with the true Son, the only Son, the only begotten Son, the God Son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that just amazing? So, as we look at these sections, uh, I want to read verses 1 through 6 again. And Paul uses the example of a lawful marriage and then death of a husband and a lawful remarriage. And he uses that as an example of our having a changed lawful relationship to the law of God. We have a changed relationship to God and His law through Jesus Christ. We're married to another to Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful illustration that Paul uses to say it's legal, it's filial, and it's good. (laughs) So here he says, Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion, has rule over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law, the condemnation and that original relationship in the covenant of works. You have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, a new changed relationship in the gospel and the covenant of grace to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God like a fruitful marriage. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. Our guilt, sin's guilt, 
Verse 6, but now we have been delivered, saved from the law, the curse and condemnation of the law by the covenant of works, having died to what we were held by because we died in Christ so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We have a new spiritual relationship to God and to his law through Christ, a legally binding connection like the example of marriage. And so it's a wonderful thing to uh, read and to understand this. And then Paul picks up and, and elaborates more if you look at chapter 8, verses 9 and following, about our being alive in Christ. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. This is called the first resurrection. We're raised out of spiritual death. Through the power of the justification of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, the Spirit of adoption, we have a legal standing, but we also have a living reality. We have been regenerated. We have been brought back from the dead. We have been resurrected out of the deadness of sin. And all of these illustrations and examples the Apostle Paul is using to explain to us that we have a new relationship to God and to His law by the covenant of grace. We have a living relationship with God in the person of Christ who is God, Jesus who is God, making known to us the perfectly revealing Savior God. And by the Holy Spirit then of adoption, moving us to a living reality of acknowledging God as our Abba, our dear Heavenly Father. And so all of these uh, descriptions that the Apostle Paul is giving are of great value and benefit uh, for us. And so uh, we look then further at uh, chapter 8. The next uh, key verses are chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. I know that you know these verses very well. They come at the end of of chapter 3, and and we really don't want to make a break there because as Paul turns to looking to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Deliverer, in this conflict and this tension that exists uh, in terms of the spiritual battle and the, between the spirit and the letter and the things that he mentions here, he comes to chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation. And that word condemnation is a powerful word. It not only means uh, the, a, a sentence of the ju- judgment, but also the execution of the sentence. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I know there's a textual variant there, but I I do follow the Byzantine text, and I, and I, I believe that passage is well documented. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit, the rule of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh... Not the weakness of the law, but the weakness of the flesh, unable to keep the law, which Paul has spent time talking about. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh in our fallen condition without the guilt of sin. Very important to to note that. On account of sin, this was accounted because of the reality of sin and our sin, not something academic, but real. God condemned Sin in the flesh. He brought the justice and judgment of God that Jesus became sin for us, Jesus who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness justified in Him. And so 
verse 4, that the righteous requirements. Here, Paul elaborates on not just that concept of righteousness, but of the righteous requirements, of the very requirements and uh, how it's um, elaborated. We've talked about this before in terms of the ceremonial and the judicial law of God and, and working out the moral law of God and its application and illustration. And Jesus kept all the righteous requirements of the law. It's mind-boggling. Read Hebrews <laughs> in terms of what Christ has done for us in keeping the law, all of the law. The righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the Apostle Paul here tells us that by the moral law of God, operative from the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, saved sinners, those who have been delivered, who will deliver me? I thank God that Christ has delivered me from this body of death. Saved sinners are freed from the condemnation, the righteous judgment of the moral law of God, which Paul spent three chapters telling us that we're all guilty of universally. And we are freed from that condemnation of the sentence passed and the execution carried out through Christ Jesus and his transferred fulfillment of the righteous requirements of the law and not some probationary do-over of the covenant of works. Beloved, if we were put in a place of probationary do-over of the, of the covenant of works, you know what would happen? We would all fail. Why would you want that? Why do people think that that gives them any advantage other than they're deluded in their self-righteousness? But Christ did it. He kept the law for us. The anointed one of God. The God-man Jesus. He kept it for us. The righteous requirements of the law. He fulfilled it all. Now, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, uh, from many, many years ago, I have latched on to these verses calling them the Jubilee Proclamation of the Gospel. Uh, if you are familiar with the year of Jubilee, there were seven uh, Sabbath cycles, at 49 years. And on the 50th year, there were two Sabbaths, 49th and 50th year. And the 50th year was called the year of Jubilee. And if you were to turn to Leviticus chapter 25, you could read about the, the joy and, and the uh, what was um, organized and how God had... Uh, uh, prepared and um, had ordered the year of release, the year of jubilee. Jubilee is an expression of praise. But the reason it was praise is because it was a year of release. By the law of God, there was release from the curse or the judgment or the slavery that came under the judgment of the law of God. And it's really illustrated there in very beautiful and wonderful ways. And it's called the jubilee for a purpose. But here it finds its fullest expression. The jubilee proclamation of the gospel. By the law of God, we are made free from the curse of the law of God. Because Jesus became a curse for us. Because Jesus kept the law for us. Because Jesus fulfilled it in its full and, and final requirements. And so uh, the conflict is not between God's righteousness and God's grace. That's a false antithesis that's often built up. The conflict is between God's law. And sin. And we're guilty. And that's the point that Paul is driving at. How do we get released from that guilt? It only comes through the transferred righteousness of Jesus Christ. His perfect righteousness accounted 
to us that we might be acceptable to God. That's, that's the point that Paul is making. That's what leads Paul for this declaration that God is just and the justifier of sinners. God doesn't compromise his justice and holiness. Christ fulfilled it. He took it all. And so that's the argument that the Apostle Paul is continuing to make here. That with a new, or that by the moral law of God, operative from the covenant of works, Jesus kept the law of God. Um, this morning in our Sunday school time, Dr. Sproul uh, made this point that was often overlooked, and that is justification equals works. But we need to add one qualifier there. Justification equals Christ works, not ours. And that's the point the Apostle Paul is making here. We are freed from the condemnation, the righteous judgment of the moral law of God through Christ Jesus' transferred fulfillment of the righteous requirements of the law and not some probationary do-over of the covenant of works. Aren't we grateful? Aren't we thankful? Aren't we filled with... Um, joy and delight and as we read and confessed from Psalm 119 this morning that's the only way that we can turn to the law of God that's holy and just and good and find delight in it because the condemnation of the curse of the law has been removed through the satisfaction of the Lord Jesus Christ giving to our account and then the next section of key verses is Chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which, I, again, I know that you're familiar with. Of course, there are reasons these are key verses, and we know them so well. They've been long recognized as such. Uh, you need to read, however, from chapter 8. Uh, you need to pick up, read uh, all of chapter 8. We're going to pick up chapters 9 through 11 next week, but from chapter end of chapter 8, turn over to chapter 12 and pick up reading there. Make the connection, connect the dots in that way. And in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, I beseech you, I beg you, I, I urge you. Therefore, brethren, as fellow believers and part of the family and body of Christ, by the mercies of God. And Paul's not just using niceties here. He's saying God's mercies are real. We have received the mercy of God. Rather than the condemnation that we deserve, we've received the grace from God through Christ. And by the mercies of God, then you are to present your bodies a living sacrifice. This is one of those gospel paradoxes. The world doesn't get it. It sounds contradictory. A living sacrifice? As a matter of fact, I think this is one of the chief words that's been dropped out of evangelical Christianity in our generation. The, the term sacrifice. That we make sacrifice. That we personally give up. Do you know that Scripture tells us that we're to keep our vows and promises even to our own detriment? What kind of sacrifice are we experiencing and committed to for the honor of Christ? That this is reasonable. You present your bodies. Remember, uh, Paul says we we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We were dead, now we're alive again. We're married to Christ. We have a new relationship. And that's not just a <coughs> new legal transaction. We have a new living reality. Our bodies are made alive through the resurrection of Christ. We have been supernaturally raised from the dead of, of sin's guilt and spiritual deadness. So this is why Paul is saying that we're to be living sacrifices and as such, holy, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable, we understand it, it's understandable, it's reasonable service. And the word service is rooted in the word for worship. That's what I believe starts first. 
We worship God first. Hey, when we talk about the law of God, and we, we have uh, recognized it, and, and it's validated by the Lord Jesus that there are two tables. The first table, our duty to God, and the second table, our duty to our neighbor. What comes first? We get all hung up on the second table of the law. But what comes first is the first table of the law. We are to worship God first. And not worship Him by our own devices. Somebody can say, oh, I worship God best by going down to the soup kitchen and and feeding people. No, you don't. That's a good way to help your neighbor. That's a good thing to do. It's, It's honorable. Even the unbelievers can do that. Many of them do. That's not what comes first. You tell me that you think you can better worship God by doing activities of the second table of the law, and I'll tell you, you are flat wrong from Scripture. The worship of God comes first. Worshiping God according to His will. That's the the real thread of idolatry. We think we can worship God according to our will. That's the root of idolatry. You shall know good and evil. You should determine how to worship God on your own. You can worship God the way you think He ought to be worshipped. And from the get-go, throughout Scripture, that becomes the, the contest and the fight. It's the fight that's going on today. It's the fight that continues to, to even struggle with remaining corruption in our hearts by doubt. We think that we have got to do something else to worship God to make Him more approved and acceptable. We must worship God according to His will. Worshiping God comes first. So this is your reasonable service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, Paul says in verse 2. You know that molding and that conformity. I want to tell you, you need to be careful what you listen to and even how much entertainment influences you when you begin to be molded in your mind and your way of thinking by the ideas of the world. Don't be conformed. Don't be molded by the world. But be transformed. You know that that word is rooted in change, a change from within. God changing us from within that works outwardly in our obedience and following and believing Him by the renewing of your mind. How is your mind renewed? By the Word of God. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly. The implanted Word. Receive the implanted Word with meekness, which is able to save yourself. Are you teachable? Are you teachable by the Word of God? Are you hearing more the Word of God than you're hearing the voices of the world? Well, it's a good uh, test for us in, in what Paul goes on to say in the balance from chapters 12 on as to whether we're hearing the Word of God, whether we're listening to the voice of God. Because it says some very challenging things. We, we saw some of that this morning in our confession time. We, we're called by Scripture to confess our sins to God. And there are so many things that go below the surface and really... Speak deep into our soul. Are we hearing that? Well, the, the transformation of the renewing of our mind that you may then prove, that you may demonstrate what is good. Covenantally, what is good. What is acceptable or well-pleasing. It's really interesting that this word acceptable or well-pleasing is rooted in the same word that Paul used at the end of chapter 3 that said, People, in their rebellion, were cheering one another on and what was well-pleasing to them. They wanted the, the group as a, as a whole to be rebelling against God. They took pleasure. They were well-pleased when others were sinning like them. Sound familiar? But here we're told that through the renewed mind of the power of the Holy Spirit regenerating and transforming us through God's means of grace... 
that we covenantally know what is good. We start with who God is. God's attributes are good. Jesus said God only is good. Good not in terms of what you and I think are good. Good in terms of who God is. Covenantal good. And covenantal what is well-pleasing to God. (laughs) Go to Ephesians chapter 1 and read there about what is the good pleasure of God's will. What is well-pleasing to God. And then what is the perfect. This word perfect sometimes misleads us. We think here in terms of, of sinlessness, that's not really the idea. The idea is comprehensive. The comprehensive will of God. Do you know from the Holy Scriptures, by the witness of the Holy Spirit and having the mind of Christ, you are to understand the big picture. The comprehensive will of God. The comprehensive will of God mainly is that God be glorified. Sometimes we struggle. I'm not sure how God's being glorified by this, but I believe Him and I trust Him and I'm going to continue to worship Him because it's comprehensive. How else? In Romans chapter 8 could Paul say, all things work together for good to those who are called of God. Do you struggle with that? Do you struggle? I don't know how this could be good. I don't understand how this is good. But I'm giving it over to God and I'm living in faith and I'm going to follow Him and I'm going to obey Him. And, and it's a matter that is going to demonstrate the comprehensive will of God. And then Paul, as I said, goes on to elaborate for us about this with a new gospel relationship to the moral law of God by the covenant of grace Christian believers are transformed out of spiritual death as sanctified living worshipers in body mind and spirit enabled to approvingly discern God's will in covenantal terms of the good the well-pleasing and the comprehensive and I do want to reemphasize that this is more than moralism Many people want to take and moralize the Word of God and make it into a a self-help and a to-do list. Paul is not giving us a self-help or a to-do list here. Paul is speaking directly into the depths of our soul with the Word of God. And how we are to worship God. It's It's to cost us something. In living sacrifices, in such a way that we are demonstrating by approvingly being able to discern from the Word of God by the mind of the Spirit the good, the well-pleasing, and the comprehensive in terms of God's covenant purposes. Well, that brings us into chapter 13. And as you well know, chapter 13 is often turned to in terms of the relationship between the Christian believer and the the secular uh, civil authorities. It really has that application, but it's rooted in something else. Uh, There is continuing validity of God's creation ordinances referencing the second table of the moral law in the world that includes Christians. And Paul starts out here in chapter 13 with the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. But the fifth commandment is the basis for God's ordained hierarchy of authority. It is used historically uh, from Scripture in creeds and confessions that the fifth commandment is the basis for God's hierarchy of authority that He has ordained, even in the secular realm, time-bound, even that which is bound to this uh, earth and this life. And so Paul starts out then with secular civil authorities and the Christian's relationship to them. But then I want you to note in uh, verses 8 through 10, 
See, chapter 13 is not just about the Christian's relationship to the civil authorities. Paul uses that as an opening illustration, an example from the fifth commandment. But then in verse 8 and following, what does he say? Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. He's still with this theme about the law and its application and how we go about fulfilling and living in it in a new relationship to God through Christ and to the moral law. Not the old covenant of works, but the covenant of grace for Christian believers, even in reference to God's authority, even among unbelievers. So what does he say here? For the commandments. And if you'll pay attention here, the Apostle Paul lists out commandments 6 through 10. He's already referenced the fifth commandment in terms of authority that God has ordained. So what does he say? For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. Second table of the law. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, love is not lawless. There are boundaries. God gives us direction. God sets those boundaries even in terms of civil authority and justice. And there are other applications and examples given to us in Scripture about those things. But here the Apostle Paul is saying that even as Christian believers, we are not lawless. We do have accountability even to God's creation ordinances in the secular realm. We are to still live and recognize the boundaries that God has established, the rules and the laws that apply even from the moral law of God. And so that's a real challenge to us, to find that balance and to find uh, how that works its way out. And so uh, as we uh, go to the next um, key verses in chapter 14, you'll see how Paul is elaborating on this. He's turning back now to the Christian uh, community to the Christian family in the body of Christ and in the, the, the church. Look at what he says in chapter 14, verse 1. Receive one who's weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. So he's giving us guidance about how we make application of what things are really important that we should dwell on and focus on, not on doubtful disputes. Elsewhere, Paul talks about this endless genealogies and, and claims to have some kind of pure connection or to be holier by your bloodline or this or that or the other or, or fables and uh, pagan uh, ideas that have come in and are um, masked as they come into the church and a variety of other places Paul deals with that. But So he says, receive one who is weak in the faith, who is a professed believer, who is young in the faith, who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. Look at verses 16 through 19. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, getting all wrapped up in these doubtful and disputeful things about uh, external regulations and rules that are not from the Word of God. And we find people doing that all the time. Wanting to add to and establish their own rules and, and, and their own ideas. You'll be holier. You can be holier if you never drink Coke. No, you won't. You may have better teeth, but you won't be holier. That's the point that Paul is getting at with things like this. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable 
What is the well-pleasing and acceptable will of God? Is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify, build up, and strengthen another. And in between the key verses, Paul has given some examples about these things. He's giving us direction and guidance. So Christ-like compassion and humility are not to be confused with indulging lawless sins. We don't understand that, don't we? We're not being Christ-like. We're not being compassionate and showing humility when we simply ignore or or, um, indulge someone in their lawless sins. Look at chapter 13, verses 13 and 14. The last two verses of chapter 13, just before chapter 14. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. So the lines are drawn there in application from the right relationship to the moral law of God. And even in terms of the secular realm, these things are not fitting. These things are not good. These things are not approved. We're not being humble and Christ-like if we indulge and say these kinds of sins are okay. They're not okay. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. So we're not being Christ-like and humble and having compassion if we indulge and, and allow others to go on in lawless sins without pointing out the Word of God says, no, that's not acceptable. We are also not being compassionate and humble in Christ-likeness if we enable weak faith as something being more holy. People who are weak in faith are not more holy. We have that mixed up. We think if somebody has a, a whole list of scruples, everything offends them. Well, they're just being more holy. No, they're not. They're weak. They're immature. They're being children. Paul elsewhere talks about those who are uh, like um, just uh, selfish, grumpy, self-centered children. He talks about Christians in that respect. and says it's not fitting to be that way. You need to grow up. Grow up in Christ. Everything is not to offend you. You don't make up your own rules. You wear your your, um, feelings on your shoulder and you think that's holy. That's not being holy. Once again, moralism has just come in and corrupted so much. So this idea that somehow those who are weak in faith are more holy is false. Rather, to be Christ-like in compassion and humility is scripturally identified by manifesting the good building of the kingdom of God. Christ ruling over our lives, acknowledging His rules, acknowledging what Jesus says is important. By the Holy Spirit empowering righteousness, peace, and joy. Now, isn't it interesting, if you were to go back and read what Paul talked about, about food, about what you eat, what you don't eat, about what you drink, what you don't drink, as compared to righteousness, peace, and joy? Look at the comparison there. What's more important? What's defined for us? What is Scripture setting out for us to understand more and more? setting out for us more and more to understand the righteousness, the peace, and joy of serving Christ and not ourselves. How God blesses that. How God blesses the righteousness that we receive from Christ. How He speaks peace to us in times of difficulty and trouble and struggle and even making sacrifice against 
the conflicts of the world and how joy settles deep within us that comes from God's means of grace and not by some kind of external uh, rule list that we get up every morning at 5 o'clock and say we had our devotions but we're half asleep rather than understanding or paying attention to what we read. That we then go through some kind of uh, uh, regimen that we measure out uh, okay, three ounces of coffee because that coffee could be bad for you. Or we will eat a half a piece of pie because a whole piece of pie would be gluttony. Foolish, foolish. And people are all wrapped up in these external things that they think can make them holy because they're weak in the faith and they're looking for some way that can, can establish for them something that, that gives them a pride and a, a sense of accomplishment and not the things of Christ. Righteousness and peace and joy from the kingdom of God, of what God says is more important. Where are we going to find what God says is more important? By doing what we're doing this morning, hearing what Scripture says. That's why I'm telling you, you need to read the verses between the key verses because Paul gives ex explanations and illustrations of these very things. So, what is, is it to be Christ-like in compassion and humility? It's scripturally identified for us in building the good kingdom of God. Christ ruling over our lives and the things He says are important and valuable and identified in terms of righteousness and peace and joy that the Holy Spirit empowers that leads us to serve Christ and not ourselves. You see, the problem with the indulged lawless person that says they can just sin as they will, and the problem with the weak faith of a believer who's looking for external means of being more holy is the same thing, really. They're serving themselves. And you see, Scripture says we're not to be serving ourselves. We're to serve Christ. And Christ says, to serve me, serve one another. That's another thing Paul's going to get to here. Whoops. Oh, I'm going to serve Christ. I'm going to serve Christ. Christ says, okay, serve me by serving those whom I've told you to serve. Uh, wait a minute, I don't like them. Wait a minute, I don't want to do that. I want to be the chief. I want to be the leader. I want to be telling others what to do. I mean, the disciples had a dispute. Who's going to be the top dog? Who's going to sit closest to Jesus? Who's going to tell the others what to do? Jesus says, oh, you want to tell the others? Okay, I'll tell you what you do. You show the others what to do in that you serve me. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Oh, another gospel paradox. You don't get it with the flesh. You only get it with the mind of Christ. Okay, so in the next section of key verses is chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus." And may you with one mind and one mouth 
glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you pick up on these verses? Did you hear the summary of the first and second table of the law? The summary of the second table of the law, love your neighbor as yourself. The summary of the first table of the law, worship God first according to his will. (laughs) That's what Paul's applying here. God the Father is glorified that through the covenant of grace, Christian believers have a new and transformed relationship to the moral law of God by Christ's imputed righteousness and the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit's ethical indwelling. Now, so that, this is what we at at chapter 15, because we've seen all this other that we built up to, so that the great commandment is being realized. It's not a mystery here. Jesus said it. Paul is applying it. So that the great commandment is being realized. Jesus said, first of all the commandments, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second's like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On, uh, there is no other commandment greater than these, Jesus said. Now you want to read verses 1 through 6 again, chapter 15? You want to read it with that in mind? We who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures. That's where we find the comprehensive will of God. Might have hope. Are you struggling with hope? Are you struggling with discouragement? Are you struggling with wanting to give up and not be fervent in spirit and thinking that you've done all you can do and you can't do any more? And what does Scripture say? That's where our hope is found in trusting and being edified and built up in the promises and the assurances of God who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up that we might not have the condemnation of the law against us, but fulfilled in us the the righteousness of the requirements of the law fulfilled in us by receiving the righteousness of Christ and a changed, transformed heart and mind and a body that has been supernaturally enlivened to desire the will of God by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So where does this hope, where is it rooted? Look at verse 5. Now may the God of patience and comfort. That's where our hope is rooted. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God. How do we have one mind and one mouth in glorifying God? When we worship Him in spirit and in truth together collectively. When we lift our voices together in praising Him. When we confess His Word together in our mouths, His Word is heard. We say it together with one mind and with one mouth. We glorify God by worshiping Him as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope that you see in this how the Apostle Paul 
is showing us that natural law theology falls short of the gospel of grace. But we have a new relationship to God's moral law through that transformation, that legal and yet familial transformation of adoption into the family of God by the indwelling Holy Spirit, His ethical presence witnessing that we are the children of God by adoption, received on the merits of Christ. And through faith, we have righteousness and hope and joy and peace, worshiping God and in loving one another and even extending ourselves against the world to love our neighbor as ourselves. Next week, we're going to look at chapters 9 through 11 in part 3. After the falling away from God into spiritual death by original sin, affecting all humanity, which has already been established in the earlier chapters. In chapters 9 through 11, God reveals His plan of redemption includes the secret decree of divine election. So there has always been only one way of salvation, promised and variously witnessed during the Old Testament and ultimately fulfilled by Jesus' New Testament. And taking up uh, the statement from the Confession of Faith that's so good here, there are not therefore... Two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one in the same. One covenant of grace under various dispensations or covenantal administrations of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we'll be looking next week in part three at chapters 9 through 11.